Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast, exploring the big picture of the Bible to bring us back to the Gospel. This is episode 21 and I'm back in Palmerston North, New Zealand at King's Grace Presbyterian Church with Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid. And we're back today exploring the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at the second half of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 28. Ian, welcome back. How are you, Brent, today? I'm very good on this slightly blustery but fine day in this fine uh, Palmerston North, a city in the Manawatu in New Zealand. Last time, Ian, we saw that Jesus brings a better temple or tabernacle and a better covenant. Now, how does he do this? Well, this is one of the really interesting things in Hebrews is that it keeps talking about how Jesus uh, is all of these things. He's the, the high priest. He's the sacrifice. Uh, he's the, the temple and even the tabernacle, which sits right at the center in the, of the temple in the Holy of Holies, uh, that on the, in his body and uh, him himself is able to offer himself to God in heaven. And we're going to explore that a little bit more today as well. Mm-hmm. How has Jesus been presented so far in Hebrews as our great high priest and indeed as a better high priest? Well, that idea of a high priest ca- came up a little bit earlier And it's this idea that we need a mediator between us and God, someone who can go before us to stand uh, before us, before God. Uh, And Jesus can do that perfectly because he is both human and he's both divine as well. Uh, And where any other high priest, they could go and offer sacrifices in the holy temple once a year. uh, But Jesus can do that constantly uh, in, in heaven before the Father. Mm. Okay, well, we come on to uh, verses 15 to 27, which is the passage we're looking at today. So uh, I'll read verse 15, which is where we'll start. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, bearing all that in mind, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, Rita, well, what's the writer saying here? Whenever we come to a therefore in any passage, especially when you start a passage with a therefore, I was always told you need to understand what the therefore is there for. So it's usually explaining something that's happened before. So we've been talking about this idea of covenant, uh, this idea that God uh, had a, a covenant with his people that they needed to obey. Uh, and if they obey, this is the, the covenant that he's talking about is the, the Old Testament covenant with Moses uh, and the Israelites, uh, which is the law, and that they needed to obey to stay in relationship with God. They were his people, but to stay in relationship with him, they need to be obedient. And if they didn't obey, there were sacrifices that they needed to perform to kind of get into relationship or stay in relationship with God. Yeah, how has Jesus' death brought in a new covenant, though? Well, we have at Jesus' death the fulfilment of that old covenant uh, in the sense that Jesus is able to perfectly live up to the law. Everything that's in the law, he's able to do because he's always in relationship with the Father. He never falls out of relationship with the Father and because he lives in relationship with the Father uh, to, to its very end, he fulfills that part of the law, but he even goes further by dying on a cross. Uh, and so by dying on a cross, uh, he's able to uh, pay the penalty for the sin of everyone who doesn't fulfill uh, up to, you know, kind of the, their portion of the law that we're meant to fulfill. Yeah, what does the new covenant actually do for us? 
Well, then this new covenant that, that he then establishes uh, is that once he's fulfilled that old covenant and he brings in this new covenant with us, uh, it brings us into relationship with God, not based on our obedience, but based on his obedience. And this is something that keeps getting explored in Hebrews, is that it is his obedience, not our obedience, that matters. Yeah, it's worth going back and exploring this business of Jesus' death and the what we call the, the substitutionary atonement, Ian. Can we just deal with this briefly again now? I know we've dealt with it in the past, but what actually happens on the cross when Jesus dies? Well, because he is a perfect sacrifice, uh, he is able to be substituted for the death that we deserve to take. And now if Jesus was a third party in the kind of transaction here, and I know that sounds a bit crude saying transaction, but uh, it is part of the, the language that we need to see here, is that because he, if he was just a third party, then that wouldn't be fair. He would be someone brought in from the side, taking on the punishment, but he isn't. He is God himself taking on that punishment. And because he is God himself, uh, he is able to offer that fairly and justly to all of us. And so his death pays for our sin and uh, his righteousness, Paul writes, and I think 2 Corinthians 521, I think it is, around about there. His righteousness is imputed to us. Now, what does that mean? This idea of imputation, it's a big word, not a word that we often use, is that you're, you're taking something that you have and you're giving it over to someone else. And so it's as if someone has paid for something on your behalf and you don't have to pay for it anymore. So Jesus' uh, righteousness is imputed or given to us. So we are seen to be righteous in God's eyes after Jesus' death and resurrection. And our sin presumably is put or is imputed to Jesus on the cross. Yeah, it's this idea of an exchange, isn't it? He, I take his righteousness and he takes uh, my unrighteousness or my, my sin on hit, onto himself. Uh, and he's able to do that because he's perfect uh, and able to do it and not be pushed away kind of for God eternally as if that's what we deserve. But he's able to do that because he is God himself. Why did God choose to do this that way? Couldn't uh, people will say, well, couldn't God's a loving God? Couldn't he just have forgiven us without all this other, this need for sacrifice? There's two kind of things there that we need to explore. One, one is thinking that if God just says, I forgive you, what type of God do you end up with? Uh, so if God, if, if you have someone that hurts you, hurts you badly, uh, and then, you know, you go to a judge and, and the judge says, oh, that's okay, you're forgiven, you know, you, you, it wasn't that bad what you did. What type of judge do you have? It's not a good judge, is it? It's a bad judge. And so there's that one part that God's justness needs to be upheld. But the second thing that we need to understand is God kind of does say, you are just forgiven because he is the one that takes the punishment and doesn't push that onto us. Mm. It's a remarkable and sublime truth. Uh, Verses 16 to 17 of chapter 9, the writer carries on. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Well, how do these verses contribute to the writer's argument? This is really kind of tapping into the Jewish mindset, I think, and particularly around how wills work, that you can't have a will uh, and it to be enacted unless the person dies. So an inheritance only gets passed on once the person dies. And so it's taking some of that kind of Jewish thinking around covenants and around wills and kind of showing how it applies to, to, 
to the way that Jesus has, has kind of fulfilled what, what God was wanted him to do. Why can our eternal inheritance only be enacted by death? What does he mean there? Well, I think he's drawing on the idea of a will, but he's also drawing, drawing on the idea uh, of the penalty for sin needing to be death. So there's just two kind of ideas I think are coming together there. But the penalty for sin being uh, that humans, a human needs to die on our behalf, you know, for, for the sin that, that occurs. Mm. So it's really profoundly logical, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now, how and why does verse 18 go back to this idea of covenant? And what's a covenant anyway? So a covenant is an agreement. It's kind of like a contract, but it's a little bit more than that. So it's kind of like an agreement between two parties. And uh, interestingly, in the Old Testament, you have different types of covenants. You have some that are one way, so God promising things to different people. So people like Abraham and Noah and David, they, they, they go one way. But then you have other one other covenant, which is the law. And that's where uh, God interacts in the covenants two-way in, in this, uh, and it's saying, this is what I'll do for you, and this is what you will do for me. And so it's kind of a, a, a kind of a two-way kind of covenant in that way. And the covenant that's being talked about here that was inaugurated with blood uh, is a reference back to Exodus, where God brings his people out of slavery. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He gives them the covenant, which begins with the Ten Commandments, uh, and the way that's enacted is by blood. Yeah, what, what, was the, what was the importance of blood in the inauguration of God's covenants? And why did God require it? There's this really weird picture at the beginning of God giving this covenant. And it's basically Moses sprinkling blood over everyone. And, and if you had been kind of an outsider looking in, you would have thought, well, who are these weird people? What satanic kind of ritual is going on here because there was just so much blood but the the idea behind blood is that blood represents life and so god was giving them life saying you are my people and by this blood i'm cleaning you even though that sounds like a weird thing to do cleaning people with blood uh, but i'm cleaning you with his blood because you have life how is blood used throughout scripture as a covering or a payment for sin well it's everywhere there's no, no point in Scripture that, that that doesn't happen, where death and blood are kind of a payment for sin. You even kind of get it back right in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve that an animal is sacrificed to cover their nakedness. And you kind of. So at every point in Scripture, you have this idea that sacrifice or death or blood needs to be used to cover humanity's sin. And is that why in the Old Testament system you have the sacrifice of all those animals in the tabernacle and temple system? Yeah, and they're all they're all pointing us towards something else. That that's the thing. And when you when you look at the, even when you read about the, the um, Solomon's temple being uh, inaugurated and kind of um, you know kind of put into practice, the amount of sacrifices was just unbelievable. We would have no idea how many there were, but it's just a whole week of sacrificing. But the idea that this is God's holy place uh, and that the blood is needed to cover sin. And so God really throughout the Old Testament puts before people this picture of, of a need for atonement and a need for atonement for sin through blood. It's like a kind of gigantic symbol, a structure of symbols pointing to something else. But 
I think the interesting thing is that no amount of that type of blood could cover our sin. And that's what it's pointing to, is that the immensity of the sacrifices, the amount of them, are pointing actually to something which is even greater in sacrifice, which is God's blood kind of being the thing that we really need. Why could the blood of an animal never pay for human sin? Well, it's kind of trying to pay kind of in in Europe with New Zealand dollars, isn't it? It it kind of doesn't work. (laughs) No. (laughs) Have you tried to do that? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Um, You're trying to pay for something that doesn't kind of convert. And so it's the problem is that the, and we're gonna, we, this kind of comes up later on, is that in, I think in chapter 10, that what is the penalty for sin? It's death. But it must, be the human, it must be human death. But the problem is every human's blood is tainted by sin. So how could there ever be a human that could pay for another human? So we need an ideal human, really, to do this. Let's hope so, yes. Mm. Okay, let's carry on. Verses 19 to 22. Uh, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. That's all a bit intricate, Rito, isn't it? And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There we are, Rito. So what do these verses tell us about the importance of blood in the Old Testament? This is, again, it's a reference back to that point in Exodus where Moses is taking the blood and he's pouring it out over the people and all over the everything used for God's worship. That blood is the thing that we need for life. And so if we want things to be holy, if we want to be in relationship with God, our sin must be covered by something. It's interesting, isn't it, that these are the very words that Jesus picks up on uh, when he institutes the Lord's Supper. This is the blood of the covenant. He uses those exact words, which is quite interesting, isn't it? Mm, yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? There's no coincidence there. No, because he's saying, he's really he's pointing to his own, his own body, isn't it, and saying this is the blood uh, of the new covenant. And it's kind of a, it's such a fascinating point. And that's why we say it when we come and do communion together, is that Jesus' blood is the real blood. Mm, Okay, right. Verses 23 to 26. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, this is all starting to sound a bit platonic again. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really strange. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away the sin, he being Jesus presumably, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay, well, how does verse 23 pick up on the idea of payment for sin then? Well, you've got here that those uh, kind of sacrifices uh, and what's happening on earth is just a copy of what really has to happen in heaven. Uh, And as it says there, 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. That, that it's pointing to something else, uh, to a need for a greater sacrifice. Yeah, why does Jesus go into the true tabernacle in heaven? Well, the tabernacle that they had on earth is—it says he is a copy of that, and the, the only—it's only really a representation. It's a mirror or a sign pointing or a symbol pointing to the true thing that's going on in heaven, which is God's presence. Ultimately, that's what it is. How does Jesus then make the full and final payment for sin? I like that, isn't it? Once for all. That, that mm. kind of t- term, it just keeps popping up, once for all. It's kind of one of those little tunes that you hear in a, in a score, in a soundtrack that just kind of keeps popping up here and there. Uh, but this idea of once for all, we're just kind of slowly being um, reminded of that, uh, that it, it has been done. Jesus has appeared at the end of the ages. And that thing, that sacrifice that we've all been longing for, that thing to, to finally uh, restore our relationship with God for good, has actually come. Mm. How does Jesus then fulfill, Ian, how does he fulfill the whole Old Testament sacrificial system? Well, he is the end of it. He's the goal of it. It's all pointing towards him. It's not like God kind of instituted sacrifices and then thought, "Mm, how am I going to uh, kind of bring this to an end? Actually, that was in God's mind the whole time. And all of these things are just pointing towards him. All the sacrificial system is pointing towards him that we need a greater blood, uh, an eternal blood, you might say, or kind of a divine blood is what we really need. Yeah, and, and we've talked about this in, in previous weeks too, uh, how there are some theologians today, or probably always have been, who argue that the death of Jesus, the sacrificial once-for-all payment, is some kind of cosmic child abuse. What's your response to that? I think it would be if Jesus was a third party. And and, uh, so in a sense, when people critique things like the atonement, and we need to listen to those critiques and and say, okay, I hear what you're saying, and you're right if Jesus wasn't God. And so if Jesus isn't God himself, willingly coming uh, to end sin, then yes, it would be cosmic child abuse. But Jesus is not a third party. You need to, we need to delve deeply again into the Trinity and say that Jesus is God himself coming to end sin. And so uh, as people are listening to this podcast, they're saying, okay, this is all very well and good. Uh, Jesus dying for my sin or the sin of humanity. Uh, but how, what am I supposed to do about it? What, what would you, your response be to that, Rito? believe it <laughs> I, don't, I don't know um, it's kind of it we, we need to keep coming back to who jesus is and if it feels foreign or if it feels kind of something that that's hasn't been made real to us keep coming back to who jesus is understanding that he was a person but he's also god read about him in the gospels come back and kind of reread what he's about and see that this is god come on earth and he's bringing heaven and he is the only way that our sin shame our guilt can actually be dealt with so why then do we need all need the precious blood of jesus because if i was to kind of stand before god i, I would crumple and and shrivel away pretty quickly because my sin is just so great uh, and this was this was actually the point when I, when I became a Christian was the thing that that struck me first was that I could not stand before this great God of the universe and that I needed a mediator before me uh, and 
It was at that point where I realised that it only could be Jesus that could, could do that. I could never work my way into that position. Only Jesus could ever do that. Yeah, some people say to me, have said to me over the years, I'll take my chances with God. You know, I'll, I'll wait till I get up to heaven and I'll have a talk to him. And uh, But I think that misses the very real fear of God that we should have, that he is a judge and that we have nothing to bring to the bargaining table when we stand before him. No, no. And I think this is the beauty of when, when you understand what Jesus has done, there, that, that fear is stripped away, not in the sense that you, your sin kind of uh, doesn't, kind of is just done away with. Your sin is still there and present, but your fear is stripped away in that understanding that Jesus has actually taken that on himself. Yeah, and another thing we should talk about, Rito, while we're on the subject, is the whole concept and, and understanding of sin. I mean, people... Uh, think sometimes when we talk about our sin, we think that we're saying they're bad people. But we're not actually saying we're bad people. We're just saying that sin is something in us that warps us and uh, destroys us and distorts our character and, uh, in a sense, pollutes us before God. Yeah, you're right. And what are ultimately what, what we might call sin or sins are often symptoms of something deeper. And so when I act badly in anger or when I, I do things which uh, kind of hurt other people, it's symptom of a deeper thing. And I think what ultimately sin is, is treason. It's treason in the sense of saying to God, no, I know better of how to rule my life than you do. I'm going to do what I think is right rather than what you think is right. And so ultimately all that those symptoms of sin are just ways of acting that, that out, the symptoms of that, that kind of deeper treason that we all have. And I guess the key to it is, is this theme of rebellion, as it was at the very beginning with, uh, with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, that they, they were rebels. They rebelled against God. They refused to live God's way. But God doesn't give up on them. And that, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? That from beginning to end, that's what the story of the Bible is about. And really, that's what our podcast is about, is, is showing how God will not let humans do this. God could have easily just said, go away. I'm not interested in you anymore. But he doesn't do that. This is his plan from beginning to end, is to end the rebellion and to bring people in back to himself because he loves them so deeply. And this is probably something that we need to, to keep reminding ourselves of, that this is about God. God's love uh, and about his glory and about bringing people to himself. Yes, it takes remarkable, must take remarkable patience. It's a bit like, uh, I suppose, I mean, you have children, you have uh, five boys. Uh, I guess it's a bit like the patience of, of a dad with a lot of rebellious children who get out of control from time to time. The problem with when you have, when you get to the kind of the stage of five, your patience is kind of can only be, you know, kind of compartmentalized for each one of them and so, and so it kind of gets smaller and smaller if you've got one you've got a lot of patience if you've got five it's kind of you've only got so much patience but uh but yes you, you kind of got to you have to kind of be patient with them and kind of let them grow and kind of work out what's going on mm-hmm. okay verses 27 to 28 of hebrews 9 let's finish the chapter off and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, so how does Jesus' blood secure our relationship with the Father then eternally? Well, if, he, if his blood actually does pay for it, then 
he only had to be offered once. That, that, was, that was enough. And so it's kind of just as our punishment would be one death, his renewal of us is one death as well. And so, which is great news. Oh, sure is. Uh, and what does the writer say Jesus will return to do? Not to deal with sin, which is good, isn't it? Because it's been dealt with. We don't need to keep coming back and thinking that we need to keep dealing with sin. Uh, but look at what it is. To save those who eagerly waiting, uh, who are eagerly waiting for him. It's kind of the, this idea that he is coming back for his people. Okay, so we've finished uh, chapter 9. How should we respond to Hebrews 9 then? Believe it again. <laughs> That's pretty simple, I'm sorry uh, for that. But the, when we do theology, and if we do theology right, or doctrine, whatever you want to call it, it, it should lead us to an overwhelming sense of awe of who God is. It leads to worship. Uh, and this is what this passage does for me. It leads me to worship. It leads me to deeper prayer. Uh, it leads me to love God more and to go out into the world and want to love other people better as well. That when I get... When I fully understand my salvation, what Jesus has achieved for me, it doesn't stay in my head only. It works its way down to my heart, and it just leads me to want to worship God more. What's your response to people who say, I'm not good enough for God? Well, you're right, aren't you? (laughs) None of us are good enough, though, but Jesus is good enough. And we're going to get to this in chapter 10, that Jesus is good enough, and that's all that we need, that none of us are good enough. And that, you know, kind of coming back to that idea that sin... Uh, kind of, you know, when we, we, t- we say that someone is a sinner, we, kind of this, it's this condemnation. But we're all sinners. And that is what it means to be a Christian, is to understand that you are a sinner and that you are not good enough and that you will never be good enough, but the freedom and the joy of knowing that Jesus is good enough. Yes, and I guess it's admitting too that we're all natural rebels against God, that in our own, if left to our own devices, we choose our own story. We don't choose God's story. We choose our own human story uh, of self-fulfillment and self-actualization and self, or whatever you want to call it, self-realization. But it's part of recognizing that we are not autonomous beings and that God is in charge of the universe and that we need to submit to him, isn't it? Yeah, and that, that's not a overnight thing like kind of either is it it's kind of one of those things where god is slowly revealing the things where you've been rebellious about because if he did just kind of reveal them straight away it would just it would shock us we would would destroy us i often like to think of it like a koru you know kind of the koru is the is the fern before it gets unfurled and becomes the the lovely leaf Uh, but the koru is turned in on itself and what god is doing is slowly turning us out to the light slowly but if he if we just if he uncurls us too quickly we'll snap and break and so he's slowly showing us the light because as as he shows us the light he's also showing us our sin where we need to change, where he is changing us. Uh, but if he was just to kind of shove all of the light in our face straight away and in doing that reveal our sin, we would, I think we would just destroy ourselves. What do you say to someone who feels, as a Christian person, who feels trapped in sin and who feels that they can't come to God or they can't come back to God, or indeed even a non-Christian person who feels trapped in sin and who feels that they can't come to God? That's what sin does, isn't it? It, it? it draws us back in on ourselves and it, f- it makes us feel like we can't come to God. And it's the, it's the huge danger of, of sin is that it just kind of we get further and further inward. Uh, but what we see is that if Jesus is our mediator, if he is our one advocating for us, 
He is not interested in you running away. He's interested in coming, you coming to him in your sin. That sin doesn't pull us away from him. That, that there is actually a potential for him, for him to draw us closer uh, in that. That Jesus uses that to show his grace and forgiveness to us. And I know that's hard for us to understand. I know that's hard for us to kind of work out because that's not how we act. In our relationships, if someone sins against us, it pushes us away. Uh, but we can't push that onto God and what he's like. He's not like that. Our sin doesn't push him away. Potentially, it draws us closer. So how can we keep coming back to Jesus then, uh, Ian? Well, we need we need to keep understanding these truths, don't we? And so I, I think it's opening his word, meeting with God's people, being reminded of his grace, just doing that over and over again. Now, that takes many years. Uh, that takes a lot of time. And sometimes we move forward, sometimes we move backwards. But it is just this constant thing that God is doing. He's reshaping us to be like him through his word and through his people. How can we keep reminding ourselves practically of what Jesus has done for us? How do we do this? Listen to our podcast. (laughs) Share it with your friends. (laughs) Um, Be in relationship with others. Opening God's word together. Talking about his truths. I know I need to be reminded all the time. Uh, of God's truths, uh, and when I'm not, kind of when I go on holidays, I, I fall into this pit of terribleness. Of <laughs> just kind of, I just find it very difficult. I, I need the structure of other people around me to kind of be reminded of of these things. Uh, that that is the the kind of God gives us other people in His grace uh, and His church to be gathered together so that we can remind each, remind each other and worship together. Okay, Ian Reid, the Reverend Ian Reid Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Thanks once again for your time. And uh, next time, Rido, I think we're going to come on and look at uh, the first part of Hebrews chapter 10. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Godstory Podcast.